the National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Yeah. Look. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frontal Williams slips through, here's a shot, it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Tom Brady is back. That sound you hear is everyone turning uh, off the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to get that excited about it. Like a Too guy many coming out of retirement after like a month. Such a drama yeah. queen. Yeah, come on, man. Like 40 days, 40 nights of retirement. Uh, you couldn't couldn't find a better team, so you're just going back to Tampa. That's it's weird. I Look, it. I think people, I think you miss the camaraderie, right? You miss the friendship. You miss the guys in the locker room. Yeah, or he spent a few weeks with his family and <laughs> decided he didn't want to do that anymore. Or there's something <laughs> yeah, else yeah, going yeah, on yeah, that is yeah. much darker. Speaking of much darker, Ben, this show every week. Yes. Uh, we are primarily focused on Ukraine again. We're going to talk about the latest in the military effort and this big debate over MiG fighter jets. We're going to be MiG fighter jet experts for the day. Concerns about chemical weapons, very serious risk there. Uh, the growing risk to journalists. President Biden is up to in the U.S. and how he's helping uh, the Ukrainian people and the reaction to the war in Russia itself. We're also going to talk about how China is reacting to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as they go into a big time COVID lockdown uh, and how this fighting between you know the West and Russia is complicating efforts to restore the Iran nuclear deal. And then Ben, was today your dream interview? Yeah, I want people to listen to this interview. Uh, <laughs> I uh, wish you guys could see the smile on Ben's face as he's going to go deep into kleptocracy. Well, I mean, you've heard me like sing the praises of this book, Kleptopia, uh, How Dirty Money Conquered the World. It's kind of the definitive work on the oligarchs and how they hide their money, launder their money, and are serviced by, you know, London law firms and private intelligence. Um, but I, so I talked to Tom Burgess, the author of Kleptopia, who was speaking to me from the British Parliament, where he was giving evidence at a hearing because a libel suit against him uh, that was brought by a bunch of these oligarchs uh, was recently tossed out in the current environment. But Tom walks us through kind of what's happened to him and, and other people like him who've been faced with uh, lawfare, as he describes it, from the oligarchs. But then he walks us through, like, how do you become an oligarch? <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> we kind of pretended like he was my conciliere. Uh, how do you get you know, mining rights? How do you launder money? How do you get all London law firms and PR shops and private intelligence to do your dirty work? And, and what might the current sanctions accomplish and not accomplish? He, mm -hmm. He's very good on what the, the holes are in the sanctions if we really want to get after this. So, check, so check it out. It's what good. a cool thing to be an yeah. expert on. I mean, unfortunately, quite timely. It's super timely, but also, uh, if you do it from London, there's got to be considerable libel law risk, or at least. Well, this is what happened to him. What's you know, he he published this book, and just you know, what these oligarchs do is they hire these really high-priced law firms to just destroy journalists because journalists are not protected from libel laws like in the U.S. Right. And what I you know what we talked about too is in fact another recent guest on this podcast, Catherine Belton. Um, who's the author of Putin's People, had the same publisher as him in the same lawsuits. And so they were actually hanging out, he said, and you know, getting drinks together and comparing notes. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it, you know, it, it, he really, he talks about, by the way, also like 
political donations to Boris Johnson's party and hmm. the various ways that oligarchs have tried to shield themselves. And Tom, you'll like that he's not a Chelsea fan, but he also points out that uh, Newcastle is also owned by an oligarch, uh, in this case, Mohammed bin Salman. So, yeah, there's a lot of bad money swirling soccer. through yeah. the uh, English Premier League. Um, that's really cool. I cannot wait to hear that. And then I'm going to buy the book as soon as the pot is over. I've been reading The New Tsar, The Rise and Reign of Vladimir Putin by... Uh, uh, the the guy who used to be a New York Times correspondent in Moscow. It's super super interesting. Stephen Lee Myers. Yeah. Um, goes deep on the history of of Vlad and how he rose to power, and you know, it's a really interesting story. I mean, he's sort of like a two bit functionary and just got in with the right people in Yeltsin's orbit and and rose. Just amazing. Anyway, right place, right time. Ben, I'm hoping you'll help me with this transition because I got to go from Vladimir Putin's rise to check out the latest episode of Offline with John Favreau <laughs> recorded at South by Southwest. Well, it would have been. Better for everybody if Putin had stayed offline, I guess. Th but, there you uh, go. Yeah. Thank you for that. John talks with Greg Daniels about his latest show, Upload, and what inspired him to write a show about the digital afterlife. Greg was one of the people who adapted The Office for the U.S., so we'd also talk about uh, the, the lasting impact of that show. You can find Offline on its new feed every Sunday. Check out Offline with John Favreau. Subscribe if you haven't. Also, check out the latest episode of America Dissected with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He's talking to Dr. Abdil Rishi, who's the lead author of a position paper from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine about daylight savings time. It's come to look for love. It's like, uh, lock. Like, yeah, I don't like David. So I'm on Team Lovett on this. I felt tired all week, I think, because of daylight savings time, and I'm pissed off about yeah, I mean, I'd, rat, I'd like it more with the daylight. I just wish we didn't have to go through this dumb yeah. know, few months of pointless clock changes. Let's just do one minute at a time for, yeah. for 60 <laughs> yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Update on what's happening. Start there. So the military campaign, this is based on background briefings by the Pentagon. And then there's a bunch of really great analysts like Rob Lee, Michael Kaufman, Ryan Evans, like people doing this on Twitter that are very helpful. So the military situation is pretty similar to where it was last week with one major exception that I want to get to at the end. The Russians still appear to be making the most progress in the south and the east of Ukraine. They're pushing up from Crimea. They're trying to encircle and siege cities like Mariupol and cut off the Ukrainian military forces fighting in the east and the Donbass. Russia continues to attack civilian areas. There's reports that about 2,000 cars worth of civilians were able to escape Mariupol, but a similar number are stuck and still waiting. Um, that 40-mile convoy that everyone has been talking about in the north is slowly reorganizing and, and moving towards encircling Kiev, but the key takeaway seems to be that the Russians are now moving slowly. Uh, they're more deliberate and they're trying to use drones and other means to protect themselves and improve their you know, targeting and force protection, presumably because the Pentagon estimates that they have lost 10% of their forces. Uh, I saw that quoted by like a bunch of reporters. I assume it means not just casualties, but like stuff. Yeah, I think, and, I think it's referring to also to, to, to equipment. Yeah, like hardware. Yeah. Stuff. yeah, so big chunk of the military though. So Ben, but to me, this was the big new development. Um, on Sunday, Russian long-range bombers fire, uh, fired several dozen cruise missiles at a Ukrainian military training facility in the West that's just 10 miles from the Polish border. That strike killed at least 35 people, wounded well over 100. And it's worth pointing out that as recently as February of this year, there were 150 Florida National Guardsmen at this facility conducting a training mission. Those U.S. troops were pulled out before the invasion, but I guess this facility is being used now to train foreigners who are coming in to help the Ukrainians. So, then uh, Biden approved another 200 million in arms and equipment for Ukraine over the weekend. But the debate is focused on this question of whether the U.S. 
or whether NATO countries should transfer MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine. So Poland offered to fly their planes to U.S. bases in Germany, transfer them to Ukrainian pilots who would then fly them back to Ukraine. The Pentagon said, no, it's a bad idea. It could risk further escalation. I'm, again, as we've discussed, the furthest thing from a military expert, but I keep reading analysis from people who are experts who say they think transferring these MiG fighters wouldn't necessarily help the military campaign that much in the short term. They say that, like, as it stands, Ukraine has lots of these old planes, um, and they wouldn't really impact the situation. But clearly, Zelensky wants them. And in the U.S., I think the MiG issue has become symbolic and sort of a symbol of, like, are you committed or not, right? It's a new thing people want Biden to do. Ben, what do you make of this decision? And, like, why do you think that the U.S. thinks that the MiG fighter transfer is escalatory in a way that sending hundreds of billions of military assistance isn't? I don't. I genuinely don't really get it. So a, a couple things here. First of all, on the military update, because it, it also kind of foreshadows the question about MiGs. Um, you know, I, I think why it's so notable that uh, Putin struck that base, you know, first of all, it's like 10 miles from the Polish border. So close. So that's very close. But second of all, it's a signal that he's targeting, and they said they were targeting um, the supply of U the Ukrainian military with arms. Yeah, resupply convoys. Resupply convoys, things like that. Why is that important beyond just the geography of it? Because I think we're all considering, well, what might cause a war between NATO and Russia? Mm -hmm. And I saw that and I thought, if Russia's really determined to strike convoys of equipment and arms coming into Ukraine, you know, what's to say they might not take a shot on the other side of that border at some point if right. they're seeing stuff being right. staged? And, and so suddenly you can see a situation where they hit something, or what's to say they don't hit something at the border that kills the NATO personnel, right? And mm -hmm. and so you can see a scenario where something like that forces NATO to take a kind of proportional response, right. where they hit right. the Russians that hit them, and there we are, right on the brink of escalation, right? So that that stuck in my mind. The other thing we've talked on this podcast uh, with Chris Miller, who was one of the best reporters on this early, you also have these foreigners flowing in to fight uh, against the Russians, a lot of former American special forces mm -hmm. types among them. And and so you you could start to see people like that be killed, um, yeah. or people like that start to kill Russians, right? And that can escalate too. So that it just spotlights that this arming of the Ukrainians is obviously both necessary for the defense of the Ukrainians, but also the potential flashpoint for a NATO conflict. Yep. Um, which gets to the MIGs. Um, first of all, the whole episode was a little messy. You know, because, yeah. I mean, this happened a few days ago, but I mean, the polls seem to announce this without notifying the Americans. Frankly, I didn't think that the American officials uh, had to be quite as, you know, Yes, yeah, in the middle of a congressional kind of, hearing, was a Victoria little, Newland, the assistant secretary, was kind of like shut it down hard. Yeah, but didn't have to take a swing at the polls. Like, yeah. let's, you know, but but the the bottom line is it felt like the polls wanted to do this or be seen to be doing this, but didn't want to take on the risk of doing it themselves. Mm -hmm. um, like the, the way in which you would get fighter jets across the border, um, you know, it's probably a little more difficult than shipping some Javelin anti-tank missiles. For sure. Um, is someone going to fly those across the border? Is someone going to drive those across the border? Yeah, I mean, I think what the plan was basically have a Ukrainian pilot fly to Germany, fly it from Germany to Ukraine. Yeah. But I, I don't know, you're right, like you get hit in the air. you get shot yeah. down and you get shot down by the Russians. So, I mean, I think there's a, this highlights, and you talked to Derek Chalet about this, but it highlights this is not a logistically easy thing. The, the bigger the equipment, the, mm -hmm. the bigger the target, uh, especially if Russia's firing at it. Um, I understand the impulse. And I, I, like you said, I don't, 
we're in, right? I mean, if we're giving the Ukrainians javelin and tank missiles, those are killing Russians and tanks. If we're giving them surface-to-air missiles, those could kill Russians in aircraft. Like, so I do tend to think that, like, if you're arming a, a military that's in a war, um, I think that the the bigger question is there's some risk involved in that. Is it worth the risk uh, right. of, of losing the equipment or uh, of, of potential loss of personnel to make that transfer? It feels to me like the U.S. position is like, yeah, we're open to this, but frankly, we think this is higher risk to get it in there. We're not sure it's as big impact as some of the other things we're providing, and therefore we don't want to kind of go out on a limb to take this risk. Yeah, that yeah. it feels more to me like that than kind of a dogmatic opposition to supplying planes, you know? Yeah, me too. It seems like, you know, look, I don't want to tell Zelensky how to fight his fight. I don't think the U.S. wants to be perceived as doing that either. But it does seem like a lot of experts just sort of are scratching their head thinking there's sort of limited utility to these planes compared to some of the other materials we're able to give the Ukrainians. Um, ben, it's also, you know, you mentioned this cross-border incident. It's worth noting that this attack in far western Ukraine, 10 miles from the Polish border, was launched from planes in Russian airspace. So these bombing raids aren't like what you see in the movies. It's not yeah. like a plane flies really low over target yeah. and they drop the bombs and they whistle and they explode. No, these are cruise missiles that are launched from Russian airspace yeah. that travel hundreds of miles and then hit these targets. So I think that just speaks to the capabilities on both sides. And again, like a no-fly zone wouldn't impact, wouldn't stop that from yeah. happening because you're probably not going to shoot down this plane if it's in Russian airspace or else that is pretty serious escalation. Um, two other quick things in the military campaign that I noted. There are reports at the head and the number two guys at the FSB, which is Russia's foreign intelligence branch, their CIA, have been arrested, presumably for, I don't know, things going south in the war effort. And two, Ramzan Kadyrov, who's the leader of Chechnya, who, as I think you mentioned on a previous show, is super a creep, historical yeah. asshole. Yeah. He's a huge piece World of shit. World historical piece of shit. Yes. We're, horrible guy. Uh, who wears $1,500 Prada boots uh, while you know, being with his military. He's reportedly in Ukraine and has personally joined the war effort, according to, because it's 2022, I think, photos on his Instagram. So that's a bad update. Yeah, I mean, on the FSB side, like you saw, you know, in the in the run-up to the war, remember the, like, Potemkin Security Council meeting and where these guys mm -hmm. like didn't know, quite know how to answer the question. Yeah, like, what? <laughs> it didn't feel like, um, it, you know, I, I think the alarming thing about it, right, is that the reports are that Putin has been in extreme isolation throughout COVID for whatever strange reason. Uh, I guess he's a long COVID believer. Um, and that he uh, has basically been listening to some really strange ideologues who've been hitting all these notes about like Russian history in the last thousand years and the restoration of, you know, Russian authority over Ukraine. And so he's like sidelining hardliners who are not crazy enough, right? right. Like that, that's, he's like, importing like, hardliners. It's, it's, yeah. like, it's not like the FSB people are like a bunch of like no. moderates, you know, or no. like, you know, um, but he's just like, so that's never a good sign, right? That, that, that there. And then Kadyrov, you know, yeah, he. I saw the videos he was posting. You can't verify them. He claimed that he was on the outskirts of Kiev with a bunch of Chechen fighters. I think that the reason that's alarming is a couple of levels, right? The first is, as we talked about, these guys are like usually the most brutal fighters in the kind of proxies of mm -hmm. uh, available to Putin. 
And, and, and frankly, you know, if what we're seeing in Ukraine recalls what happened to Grozny, the capital of Chechen, which is leveled, followed by like mass torture and repression. Like Kadyrov, this is a guy who's tortured people, who's assassinated people, you know, who's been a part of real excesses in terms of human rights violations. And again, um, rumored to be attached to a number of the assassinations that Putin has carried out against opponents. Right, right. Again, God forbid, but you know, Zelensky, other senior Ukrainian uh, officials, like these Chechen kind of hit squad type guys, you know, this is part of what they do. Um, uh, this is not to besmirch all Chechens, it's to besmirch Kadyrov um, and his circle. But but yeah, it's just a sign of just how ugly this thing is. Yeah, bad news. And also like, you know, maybe conscripted Russian soldiers won't commit some mass atrocity against someone they feel like is their brother in Ukraine, but maybe a Chechen will, maybe someone he imports from Syria and you know, is getting paid a bunch of money. So wor- worrisome signs of escalation. Uh, another one, Ben, is this increased conversation around biological and chemical weapons. So I think there's two parts to this story. The first is that Russian propaganda channels are really pushing hard this idea that there were US-funded labs in Ukraine that are developing and planning to release some new virus, some new coronavirus uh, on the world to take down the world. And they're now suggesting that Russia invaded Ukraine to stop this evil plot. Um, This is a lie. It's obviously like their second pretext before it was stopping Nazis. Now it's stopping bioweapons. But you should red pill on this thing because it it has ties to kind of other non-Russian far-right conspiracy theories. Well, that's the interesting thing, right? So the truth is that the U.S. provides Ukraine in a lot of countries with funding for biosafety. We do infectious disease research. We've also funded efforts. Obama and, and Senator Dick Luger, a Republican from Indiana, went to Ukraine back in like 2005 and six, and looked at facilities that were destroying old chemical and biological weapons from the Soviet Union. That's very important work. But this new theory, like NBC had a great story about this. Um, this narrative is really blowing up in far right media circles because sinister bio labs are now pretty familiar in, yeah. in their brains thanks to COVID. Uh, and it allows right-wingers to blame Dr. Fauci and all their favorite boogeymen. And of course, Tucker Carlson leapt on this immediately and has been doing all kinds of reports. And the second part of this is scarier, which is that the U.S. reportedly has intelligence that the Russians might be preparing to use chemical weapons in Ukraine and that they might conduct some sort of false flag attack to claim that Ukraine or a Western country actually were the ones who did it. So that's how like part one and part two of this tie together. So Ben, you know, Assad used chemical weapons in Syria. Putin has used chemical weapons to assassinate his political opponents, including most recently in London. Idiots on the far left, idiots on the far right have latched on to these Russian conspiracy theories and propaganda. Now, stipulating that you and I are flawed and humbled participants uh, in this conversation, my question for you is, do you think that w- now that we're talking about chemical weapons, that Biden should articulate some kind of red line publicly, privately? That are that you know outlines a cost to chemical weapons use in an effort to deter him, um, or and if so, like what kind of penalty there might be? Again, we, we know yeah, yeah, that no, this we didn't know, go we well know. in Syria yeah, with yeah. Obama. I, but I, like, there's a question of whether you should try to deter him. Yeah, well, and that because we revisit the whole <laughs> Obama Syria thing. But um, the, the first of all, I'd say the 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 point about the disinformation campaign is, is a telling one because it speaks to what the Russians are good at, which is they they find conspiracy theories that are already out there mm-hmm. and they kind of come in behind those conspiracy theories right and and, and they amplify them and make them their own right, right. so there, there are already these conspiracy theories about biological weapons labs and coronavirus 
there were conspiracy theories back in 2013 on the far right and the far left <laughs> about the Syrian chemical weapons attack being a false flag operation. So they kind of come in behind that and say, okay, this is what's happening. Right? And, and then they kind of build out a narrative mm -hmm. from it. Um, and it's worrying because it's both the justification for their war, but it's also potentially a pretext to either blame the United States or Ukraine for a potential chemical weapons attack or biological weapons attack, or you know, some strange pretext for why they had to launch an attack. Yeah. Because, so that, that, that matters. And in case this sounds ridiculous to you, it's highly effective. The, the Soviets said in the 80s that the U.S. created AIDS, and that conspiracy theory has stuck around for literally decades. Well, and remember, Pod Save the World listener, you are not the subject of this conspiracy <laughs> right. theory. It's the Russian public, you know, right. sufficiently keeping enough pretext in front of enough of the Russian public. That's all he really needs. And right, then maybe right, right. if he can mess around with some people's heads in other places. If they get to Tucker Carlson's head, yeah, bonus. <laughs> that's the, all then the they'll use that moron that's just a to bonus. further drive it. I think on your direct question about red lines, um, so I'll just take it head on. Like Part of what was interesting about the Obama experience is he said that would be a red line um, and that would change my calculus. Mm -hmm. He actually did not say... I will launch military action right. response. Everyone assumes. But that's what everybody took it as, yeah. right? So the first lesson I draw is that if you say there'll be consequences, people are going to think that means you will go to war right. with Russia right. over that chemical weapons attack. And by right? the way, you need I, congressional authorization. Yeah, exactly. All these same questions come up. So I, I, I think it's a hard thing to, unless you really mean that, right? Um, you better mean that you're willing, you're going to use military force because anything short of that will be seen, obviously, as, as a climb down. And then in terms of whether you use military force, I mean, I think that one of the, the this, this it's funny, like that we've started the conversation with the, 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 the base. This is the other thing, right? We're starting to see other ways this could escalate. So yeah. Just as an attack on NATO personnel or equipment going into Ukraine could be the beginning of a NATO-Russia conflict, a kind of mass chemical weapons attack or bio attack in Ukraine, you could see how that could lead to, to the, the imperative uh, for NATO to feel like it has to, to act militarily. But I, I don't know that I would spell that out in advance. I mean, I, I just think that, um, you know, what, what Biden has going for him to some extent is a degree of, you know, he's clear about what he won't do, um, but there's some ambiguity in between what we're currently doing and not wanting to get into a direct war with Russia. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of space to escalate, you know, the types of support you're providing Ukraine, the intel support, the cyber operations you could launch. Um, and then, yes, maybe up to um, whether or not there's situations that would trigger a military strike. Um, I think that if you start getting into the, the the business of drawing direct causation, if you do this, I'll go to war. Well, will you do it for other things too? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what? Why does that mean you will go to war with Russia over a chemical weapons attack, but maybe not a conventional attack that kills a lot more people than chemical weapons attack? Right. I mean, you know? we saw this in Syria, right? Yeah. Like sarin gas, VX gas, is that different than chlorine gas? One is banned under the various chemical weapons conventions. One is a chemical that we use in pools, but that can also kill mass amounts of people and terrorize And them. where it gets so horrifying is that like what we went through in Syria is that there were chemical weapons attacked before the big one, um, the, the sarin attack in 2013, um, that, that took us months to figure out right. what had happened because they were using chemical weapons kind of alongside conventional warfare. And it took literally 
like a period of weeks to determine what were they using there? Was that a chemical weapon? Was it a banned chemical weapon? Um, and, and, and so look, I, I think he should introduce some ambiguity here, you know, um, about, um, you know, how we'd respond. But I think it's hard to say, unless you really mean it, um, if we see any use of chemical weapons, we're going to war with Russia. I mean, that that's a big decision. And I would imagine Biden wants to leave himself some space. I, I, this all sounds horrifying. They're having this conversation. I know. I mean, look, this is the hardest like, questions they're going to be and, facing. And, and if I was Ukrainian, I would want us to make that assurance. If I was Ukrainian, For I'd sure. want us to do a no-fly zone. If I was Ukrainian, I'd want us to give them MiGs. If I was Ukrainian, I'd want us to say that if we see any chemical weapons use, we go to war with Russia. Um, I, I, that's totally fair. And, and, and that's exactly what I'd be doing if I were them. Uh, I do just think that you have to be able to leave yourself when it comes to a potential war with Russia, which could escalate to a nuclear war. Um, I think you do need to leave yourself some decision space based on how events are unfolding. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly was maybe one of the big takeaways for us. And by the way, I, cause I wouldn't rule out again, if they bomb NATO forces, like I think you have to take a shot and respond. I mean, there, there, there are, I'm not ruling out that there's steps short of full war. There are no scenarios where you do something. Yeah. Yeah. So before we move on for this, this military update section, we want to play you a clip from an 18 year old Ukrainian named Vlad. He's from Zaporizhia. He's home with his mom and grandmother while his dad is fighting on the front lines. And he is talking about a friend of his who he just graduated high school with, who was killed in the fighting. Here's a clip. Some of us, including me, uh lost our friends in battles already and it's it's been something that we couldn't have imagined even like three weeks ago because it was it was peace basically i studied with him in the ukrainian leadership academy uh and just imagine a 19 years old guy who wanted to build a military career uh, he was very uh, he was very kind and disciplined and i imagine that uh if the war didn't start uh he would be probably a military of defense in a few years and what i want to say that uh he didn't have fear to sacrifice himself for our country. And, and it's someone you could see on the street. It's, it's a, a, a standard, normal high schooler that graduates from, from, from the school and goes to, uh, to, to be in a military sphere. And then he, and then the war takes place and he's not, he's not scared to, uh, to defend his country. And then he just suddenly dies. And you can't believe that this happened. You, you kind of post a story on Instagram with the, with the words of, uh, of pain, but you can believe and you do the fact checking again because you think that someone will text you. Oh no! What did you, what what did you post? He's still alive, and it's just it just just imagine your friends. Just imagine that this happens to your country. Putin is trying to invade NATO countries too. So why do we have to wait until then? Why can't we stop that? So people like your friends, like your colleagues, like people you studied with in high school, like my friends, uh, stop dying, and basically me stop dying because next call. For example, maybe won't even happen. Who knows if the bomb will 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 fall on my house tomorrow? And I'm not pessimistic about it, but it just it's just the reality of of being in war. It just can't happen. And pretty pretty devastating reality for you know a lot of people in Ukraine right now. Your classmates are going to war and dying. Your father somewhere fighting. You don't know if he's okay. Your mom, sister, are trying to get out. I mean, it's just it's pretty horrific. Um, you know, to state the obvious, Ben. I mean, I think the conflict the conflict is getting more dangerous every day. It's more dangerous for Ukrainian civilians like Vlad, and the risk of other countries going getting drawn in is going up. There was that strike near the border. There's this threat to hit uh, supply convoys by the Russians. Uh, I saw today, Tuesday, that the Polish, Czech, and Slovenian prime ministers are in Kiev for meetings with Zelensky. That is brave 
but you know, a little unnerving, right? I mean, they're they're at risk getting drawn in directly. And the risk to journalists covering the war is also increasing. So, you know, as of today, Tuesday, at least five journalists have been killed. Three Ukrainian, one American, one Irish. Um, Brent Renaud, who's an experienced journalist and filmmaker working for Time magazine, he's an American, was shot and killed this week. Fox News reporter named Benjamin Hall was wounded this week. A Fox News cameraman named Pierre Zakruski uh, and a Ukrainian journalist named Alexandra Kushvainova were killed all this week. So, you know, Ben, these are like heroic, uh, experienced, accomplished reporters. Many have covered other wars, but this that's like a shocking death toll in, in 20 days. Um, and I was reading a thread from another journalist on the ground named Jane Ferguson, who said that this war is as difficult to cover and as dangerous as any as she's seen because there's no real front line, right? There's artillery fire everywhere. It stretches for miles. Reporters are not embedded with, with military units. They're in like cars on their own. And, you know, you have jumpy Ukrainian soldiers and volunteers. You have Russian saboteurs. You have Russian soldiers and mercenaries who seemingly could give two shits about killing either civilians or the press. They probably want to kill the press. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder at what point some news agencies are going to decide either the risk is too high to be there at all or change the way they cover it. Um, but it's very, very scary. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's scary across the board. I mean, I think that we have to get our minds around here. Look, look, there's a um, there's a fair, you know, what about about what did the war in Iraq look like to the rest of the world? You know, like um, we experienced the war in Iraq in, in a way that was very different than the rest of the world did. In that, that was to the most of the world a situation of a big country invading a small one and occupying it illegally. Um, the difference though, and this is an important difference for all, look, the, America, there are civilian casualties in our wars. There are, um, instances of, of, you know, horrific abuses, but you have to understand that Russia clearly draws like no distinction between a civilian and military target in a way that even the U S military, like in its worst, you know, is, does not deliberately target um, civilians, journalists, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, you can see videos of tanks just drilling just, shells, just drilling into shells buildings. into apartment buildings yeah. as as a strategy, you know. Yeah. And and again, we saw this in Grozny. Like the, there's a Russian uh, and Putin uh, mastermind based uh, yeah approach that's just like okay, if you want surrendered us, we're just going to destroy your cities and terrorize your populations. And that's what we're watching before our eyes. And and it puts these journalists at risk. I think all the time about people like Christopher Miller and Tanya Kozreva, um, who we've had on this show, who are like in the middle of this, um, heroic, because the information they're bringing to us is so important, right? Yep. And, and so such a value in that information. But part of what Russia wants is they want to shut down the information. They don't want the right. truth getting out. They don't want people reporting on what they're doing. And, and so we may see this escalating. Uh, and again, I, I people always ask me, I don't know if you get this time, like, well, how do you think this will end? And this does not look good, you know, and the diplomacy, like the idea of the Ukrainians surrendering their sovereignty feels less likely. Um, we don't, and, and under the current trajectory of events, like you say, it's been three weeks now, like this can get a lot worse. It can get a lot worse in terms of the NATO escalation we've talked about in terms of above all the civilian suffering, the risk to journalists, like the trajectory of this thing is bad. I know that's kind of traumatic to people uh, above all the Ukrainians, but I think our 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 obligation is to understand it as best we can, and 
um, in part because this is going to be with us for a long time in one shape or another. Yeah, and look, people reference Grozny a lot. I mean, you know, the Russians fought a war in Chechnya in the early 90s before Putin's time, basically lost, basically yeah. got run out of there. And it was a huge affront to their pride and their sovereignty and, and you know, collective global ego. And so when Putin uh, had his chance a few years later, he basically doubled the number of troops that went in and decided to scorch the earth, literally yeah. shell yeah. everything into rubble. Uh, and that's the risk. I mean, early on, it seemed like they were trying to avoid civilian casualties to topple the government quickly and install a puppet government. Now, who knows what's going to happen? Now, the most yeah. optimistic people predict maybe, you know, there will be a collapse of their military. They won't have supplies. But like, I don't, no one knows is, is the answer. But there's a lot more ways it can get worse than better. Yeah. I mean, I do think like the, there are the endpoint scenarios, right? There, there's, the, I guess the deal on the table is, you know, uh, if, if the Ukrainians, you know, give up their claim on Crimea, not their claim, it was right, their, their territory, territory. Yeah. Um, renounce NATO. And then there's this question of the Donbass. But right. like, again, like the framework, a lot. The, the minds of the Ukrainians to, to swallow that uh, and, and, you know, given what Russia's done very hard. So then you're looking at scenarios of Russian defeat or scenarios of kind of like 10 year occupation insurgency. And the, I think part of what is so disconcerting about this situation is that a weak and losing Putin is potentially an even more dangerous Putin, right? Because yeah. we've already seen, like, he couldn't win quickly, so now he's killing more people, right? If he still can't win quickly, because, frankly, the Ukrainians are showing some really stubborn and effective defense of places like Kiev, he'll tr perhaps try to kill more people or perhaps try he'll to use chemical to weapons. Or, or a tactical or, nuclear weapon. Or if, if, if it all starts collapsing around him, then what does he do, right? And so part of what's so scary about this is a victorious Putin is terrifying because he could kind of continue his aggression and subject Ukrainians. A defeated Putin can be terrifying in that he may lash out with nuclear weapons, right? And 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 everything in between that is not good either. Yeah. And, and everyone's like, is he rational? Is he not? I, I think that's kind of the wrong way to think He's about Putin. It. He's Putin. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he's viewing this war in existential terms for himself. If he loses, he's no longer the strong man and he might get whacked. Yeah. So who knows how that goes? I mean, the point you made about how long this could take, the point you made about how the Russians are probably trying to kill journalists and drive them out so that the people don't know what's going on. It's certainly on the mind of Ukrainians. Um, Haley, our amazing producer here, talked to two Ukrainians over the weekend about this exact anxiety of just being forgotten. Uh, and the first uh, voice you're going to hear is Andre, who's a 29-year-old startup founder from Kiev who is helping with the cyber defenses against Russia. Um, and then you'll hear from Roman, who's a 29-year-old visual engineer from Lutsk. Here's a clip. I'm really worried about, you know, once the next big thing comes, then uh, the flow of attention and the flow of money and the flow of information is going to uh, crumble. But that's where the real work starts, because we have a lot of ruined cities. We have a lot of dead civilians. We have a lot of stuff that needs to be rebuilt. And that's going to take years. I know that this is going to go back, go from the front page, from uh, disappear from the front pages because it's going to drag for a long time. Please don't forget about us. And please remember, this is our we are fighting for the basic humane values against something that's as close as, as it can get to pure evil because they are fighting against the freedom. And it's not some extra court, it's freedom to express yourself, to do the things you want uh, in any way. So it's like oxygen for us people, like Ukrainians or British or French or Americans. So don't forget about this. This is a very important fight, maybe a historic fight for the whole world. 
So, you know, the good news is that I think globally, at least in the U.S., this is this what's happening in Ukraine is front of mind, like no other stories since you know the pandemic. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the U.N. Refugee Agency. The U.N. Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. So here, Ben, is a quick rundown of what's happening in the U.S. So President Zelensky is addressing the U.S. Congress on Wednesday, March 16th, so the day this comes out. He just recently addressed the British and Canadian parliaments. Uh, The U.S. military support is now well over a billion dollars. We know that there's this overt arms effort through the Department of Defense. I'm also kind of curious, we'll probably never know, if there's some CIA... Wait for the books. Yeah, (laughs) some some CIA finding uh, that is allowing them to provide covert support to... I don't don't know what they could do that the overt side can, but I don't know, it's in my my head. Um, President Biden is apparently considering a trip to Europe, maybe to Brussels, just to show solidarity and commitment to NATO. This comes shortly after the vice president's visit to Poland and Romania. Conservatives are are making fun of the White House and Jen Psaki for holding a briefing about Ukraine for TikTok influencers. I guess these Just shows that they don't understand how modern media look. Works. Morons. Yeah. A lot of people around the world are consuming this war on TikTok. Tens, if not hundreds of millions more, of people. More, more people are consuming this war on TikTok than watching my MSNBC hits. Oh, my God. It, it's, yeah, it's so, it's so Which funny. Which is not a shot at my no, MSNBC hits. Yeah. Yeah, Keep yeah. in on MSNBC. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, it's like you see these like right-wing bloggers being like, oh, what morons. Briefing TikTok stars. Like, yeah, these, these people have like millions of followers. Anyway, um, Ben, there's a suggestion on top of all of this that Biden and Democrats maybe then run on their handling of Ukraine in the midterms. Any thoughts on on all of this? But, you know, I was a little surprised by this suggestion that, like, Ukraine is a campaign issue. That seems weird to me. So the first thing I, I we should express after hearing those Ukrainian voices, like, I don't think this is going away. And and look, while we have emphasized, you know, the, the kind of caution around getting into a military conflict with Russia, we, we Russia has just been kicked out of the global economy. (laughs) Russia has been subjected to sanctions that we've never imposed at this scale. We are pouring weapons in Ukraine. So we are in this thing. 10% of their military is apparently blown up. Yeah. Like we are in this. This has basically become the purpose of the the democratic world. And I don't think that's going to change. I think that that people agree with the Ukrainian analysis that this is kind of the fault line of everything right now. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to change even like years from now. And that Ukraine's going to need help on the back end of whatever happens to to rebuild. I think in terms of the politics, um, I I would look the the Republicans are likely to become cynical. They're constantly going to be demanding you do more um, or they're going to be 
blaming you for the consequences of things like high gas prices. We know that. Um, I don't know that you you run on the handling of it, though, um, because it, the situation is awful. I, I think they've yeah. handled it like well, definitely. I think they've done everything they can do, and they've done it in a smart and, and deliberate way. But I, it, it it's not like a quote unquote success. It's not a good outcome. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It sucks. And so, yeah, it's horrifying. What I think you can do, though, and this is a much bigger question that I think we can unpack on this podcast in the weeks to come, is this is all connected and. Like Putin is the most vicious and evil brand of autocracy and authoritarianism that is endangering democracy everywhere here. The kleptocracy that he embodies. We get, you know, Tom Burgess brought this up himself in the interview with me. Like Trump is a kleptocrat. Like, mm -hmm. like that. That's just a fact. So like uh, he's cut from the same cloth as the oligarchs around Putin. Right. That that I think that what Biden can do is say we have a moral high ground here. You know, in, in, in the world in a way that's important. But that moral high ground is tied to democracy and democratic values and the things, frankly, that Republicans have been undermining and also playing footsie with Putin over the years. And, and by the way, the corruption that fuels that autocracy is the corruption that has leaked into our system too. And it's a bigger argument and sometimes a complicated one to make, but it it's one that's worth making in its own uh, on the merits. You know? Right. Yeah. And Lucy, you, you had a great piece in The Atlantic over the weekend that I think really expands on this point yeah. in this sort of inflection point we're at in history that that people should read and i agree we we i think this will be like how this cuts how this changes the entire world will be like the conversation going forward and i will say two things it, it, like that are to their benefit right one is remember all the people who said after afghanistan that that america could never lead the west again uh, yes. and, you know those takes right. are 6 months old and they look ridiculous right ludicrous and actually i think that we're in a stronger position to deal with this because we're not in Afghanistan. So I think in some ways it changes the perception. Now the Republicans will say you were weak in Afghanistan, that's why I invaded Ukraine. That's clearly utter bullshit. Sure. Like okay. Putin clearly meant to do this for a long time for yes. a lot of other reasons, you know? Um, so I think they can make their argument and they can, they can and should make the argument like, this is a new era in world history and it's a dangerous era. And particularly if Trump is the opponent in 2024, but if, you know, some some blowhard COVID denier like Ron DeSantis. Like we're back in like the Cold War days where like you don't want lunatic kleptocrats to have the nuclear codes, you know? And so I think beyond just saying this is a success, it's more like, hey, we got some grownups in charge and don't let the unserious people back in. Yeah, let's hope that works. Um, uh, so yeah, the, the problem with all these Republican arguments is they just like, they rob Russia of any agency. <laughs> yes, yeah. So let's let's talk about what, what is going on in Russia or with Russian officials, because obviously, and they matter here. So we talked earlier about these reports that the FSB leadership is arrested. We can't confirm that, but it's interesting. There's, there's still these scattered protests and mass arrests. There was this unbelievable video of this brave journalist named Marina Avsaynikova, who works at one of the biggest Russian propaganda networks in the country, she ran into a live broadcast of the most watched propaganda show on Monday, yelling, stop the war while holding a sign that said, they're lying to you here. Unbelievable yeah. moment of like the truth seeping into their Amazing. propaganda. Yeah. So despite efforts to censor what happened, apparently this clip went really viral. There was a ton of comments on her Facebook page. 
Um, oddly, Ben, today I think the Russian prosecutors announced that she's just going to get fined the equivalent of a couple hundred bucks and not go to jail. I, I don't get how she got off that easy, but I'm, I'm glad. Um, there's reports in the journal over the weekend that a bunch of Polish programmers created a website that is allowing users to send messages directly to millions of Russian phone numbers and email addresses that they farmed from someplace. So basically, you go to this website, 1920.in, 1920.in, and you can send images about the war, news, you know, like text in Russian. Uh, so that's an interesting way that people are trying to sort of break through this censorship and, and propaganda. Uh, the Russian government has now blocked access to Instagram. This is sucks because it was a way for Russians to voice opposition to the invasion if they wanted. It's also just going to hurt a bunch of regular people in Russia that have small businesses. Um, on the uh, good news side of the ledger, there's lots of reports of like half a billion dollar yachts being seized by name of government around the world. And the New York Times reported that a $700 million super yacht seized in Italy could be used or could be linked to Putin. It could be like some oligarch carve out owns yeah, it for yeah. him. Well, Putin owns all of it in the end. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So let's hope. Um, EU is tightening some sanctions. They haven't cut off oil and gas. Um, Ben, I, look, I don't think I'd have the guts to run into a Russian state TV set yeah. screaming stop the war, but um, amazing to see that happen. It is. It's a reminder, again, we should not stigmatize all Russians with what Putin's doing. Yes. Um, you know, there are a lot of Russians who disagree. I think it's a reminder, too, that inside these authoritarian systems, it's wrong to assume that everybody who works at the propaganda networks or everybody who works in the military or everybody who works at the FSB agrees with what's happening. They don't. I thought what she said that was really notable, among other things, is something that echoed Navalny, which is she basically said, they can't imprison us all, you know, and very deliberately trying to kind of send out the bat signal to all her compatriots who she knows are there. Like, she knows that a lot of people agree with her. Courage can be contagious. Yeah. Um, just like fear can be contagious, right. right? And part of what Zelensky's done is he punched the bully in the face. And when you do that, the bully loses the capacity to intimidate. I think inside Russia... People are now trying to show, let's all do this together. They can't imprison us all. And frankly, maybe they didn't throw the book at her because they didn't want to make her a martyr, right? And, and uh, like a, 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 an instigator for protest. The reality is this Polish thing you mentioned, this is also where this is going. Like the, the, it's not just about like MIGs and no-fly zones. Like the information war into Russia is going to be really critical. And hey, Russia has been really aggressive in pushing social media into our uh, ecosystem. Like, I support any effort to oh. get this information directly to Russia. So I'd love to see yeah. a covert finding doing some real work here. Or, yeah, or just like the, the, the combination of American and, and European resources and, like and, anonymous, and, and, and tech companies groups, and yeah. citizens. Like, like, like and I know they won't work together because they shouldn't, but like if the combined weight of everybody who has some capacity to drive information starts pushing it at Russians, the, the the capacity of Vladimir Putin to hide this from his people, I think he can't. The the other amazing clip that was going around over the weekend was like someone was filming these little protests. And so basically, you know, someone would unfurl a sign in some town square and immediately 10 Russian, you know, cop thugs would arrest that person. So yeah. this person and this, I think it was a woman just begin to briefly speak about, you know, why she opposes the war. They arrest her. Another woman walks up to the camera that's filming and was about to explain why she supports the military effort. A bunch of cops arrest her, right? It just speaks to the just absolute insanity of Russian propaganda and state control and totalitarianism. Yeah. You know, there was that woman holding the blank sign, which is a great, yes, like a great protest. Arrested. It's like, fuck you, you know, but I think I... 
it's really important to remember that like, you know, you can, the communist party was what it was, you know, not great. Um, it was a party, right? It was, it had an ideology behind it, communism, although, you know, they didn't obviously like implement that exactly like, you know, Marx designed it. A few flaws, it. yeah. But, but like there was an ideology and infrastructure around it. Putin has no ideology behind it. It's just kleptocracy and underneath straw man it nonsense, and strongman yeah. Russian nonsense. And it's not really like it's a system in that he has like cronies and, you know, he's got people, you know, embedded all over the power structure. But it, it's kind of a Ponzi scheme, you know. Um, it, it's pretty hollow underneath. It doesn't have decades of, of intellectual and ide ideology behind it like communism. It doesn't have a massive constructed bureaucracy like the Soviet state did. It's just it's just an empty kleptocracy. Yeah. And so I do think it's not beyond the realm that the thing collapses at some point. Speaking of communism, uh, there's a lot of speculation and question about what China will do in, in response to what's happening or how they view this war. Here's what we know. Um, Chinese state-run media seems to be either repeating Russian propaganda, including this biolabs shit, uh, that's probably payback for all the, you know, U.S. biolab propaganda. Not propaganda, but you know what I mean. From yeah, yeah, yeah. Far right. Uh, they're also criticizing the West. They're generally suggesting that China is the big winner in this conflict. No surprise that that's their take. Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, is meeting with his Chinese counterpart in Rome. The U.S. reportedly has intelligence that says that Russia has requested military assistance from China, including drones, armored vehicles, surface-to-air missiles, other stuff. Sounds like Jake's message to China, when he said this publicly, I think, is basically if you evade sanctions, if you give them arms, there will be severe consequences. Um, it's also worth just noting that China is now in the midst of its worst COVID outbreak since 2020. There's lockdowns and travel bans in several provinces, including financial and industrial hubs. I've seen estimates between that are that between 37 and 51 million people are locked down right now. It's unbelievable scale. You know, you have Apple, Foxconn, other major manufacturers had to shut down production. Um, economists are now coming out saying they're pretty worried this is going to exacerbate supply chain issues, exacerbate inflation, just like compound a already major problem. So everything's a mess. Ben, I know you like have been watching China. I think yeah. everyone is. Everyone's speculating on how they view this. Do you have a sense of how they may be viewing what's happening in Ukraine? And, and, and do you feel like it's a mostly a proxy for their aspirations for Taiwan, something bigger? Like, how do you think they view this? So as, as someone who's pretty cynical about Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party, I, I think that, like, on the one hand, they don't like the massive economic instability this is introducing. They don't like to see the scale of sanctions that Russia faced because it's a kind of... Uh, yeah, and probably the amount know, of weapons. It's a bit of a warning shot Ukraine, of yeah. what they could face um, over Taiwan. Although they have obviously a much, much bigger economy, much, much more integrated into the, the global economy than Russia's. But I think what they like is this is hugely disruptive. The US and Europe are spending all their time on this issue and not on, on China, on that, not yeah. on China policy. Um, and Russia could become this kind of vassal state to China where they have to sell everything on the discount to the Chinese. So suddenly got discounted oil pouring in and other natural resources. And then, you know, as we talked about, they become the technology supplier of first and last resort for Russia. So they're like wiring this country so that even if someday like Putin's gone, like what's left is like a, a Russia that is wholly dependent on China, wholly wired by China. China's getting cheap oil and gas. Maybe. China's getting cheap oil and gas. Like this could, you could see a scenario where they're kind of a strategic winner 
albeit with some complications along the way. Mm -hmm. All that said, I think that like for them to start arming the Russians, like backfilling arms to the Russians, that is a major escalation. That would be like a big, big deal. Now, granted, we do that Real to problem. Ukrainians. We get that. But like the Chinese don't normally get involved in like wars like, you know, what they did in like Vietnam, I guess. Right. That was a while ago. But um, so I, I think that what and, and, and frankly, the sanctions enforcement is kind of a gray area, too, because the Russians will probably be able to try to find ways to sell oil discount to the Chinese and ways to cut around um, Western sanctions enforcement. I think that the the message from Jake that I'd be interested in, I don't know what exactly it would be, is like, what is going to trigger much more structural sanctions on China vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? And, and how much, again, are we willing to back up that threat? How credible is that threat? I think we can probably, hopefully knock on wood, back them off from doing things like, you know, significant arming of the Russians, I think it's going to be much harder to get them to kind of go along with our sanctions, you know, and not backfill some of the losses Russia's going to have. That's going to be a fun meeting, huh? Yeah. You fly all the way to Rome, get yelled at for a couple hours by our counterpart. Yeah. These meetings are always in like these nice places that you don't get to enjoy because you're like, you know, you're arguing with the Chinese. Uh, yeah. You go into some hotel in Rome and then you construct a <laughs> yeah. fucking blue tent inside it so yeah, you can yeah, have yeah. classified conversations yeah. and then you never see the light of day. Yeah. It's a cool job still. So, we're so not complaining. Cool job, but yeah, um, yeah. Ben, the other way this, that Ukraine, I mean, look, the Ukraine conflict is spilling into everything that's happening in the world. I think it was the head of the World Food Program said uh, it could cut the global supply of, of wheat to the poorest countries in half, right? Like there's just a million ways this could be a catastrophe. One near-term way is the impact on talks with Iran about the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. Uh, we haven't talked about this in a while, uh, but as listeners know, the U.S. has been trying to get Iran back into some version of the 2015 JCPOA since Biden took office. We want to prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon for obvious reasons now. Uh, Russia had apparently demanded that their trade ties with Iran be exempt from U.S. sanctions regarding Ukraine. Some people were worried that this was just Russia's way of blocking the deal entirely from going forward because they know it's a priority for the U.S. But a couple hours before we started recording, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, reportedly said he'd gotten assurances that he needed that they wouldn't be impacted. What the hell do you make of this? Do you have any hope for the Iran deal getting done sometime soon? It was, I mean, it was a pretty big wrench to <laughs> threw a into big it. wrench. I mean, because there's a couple of questions. Like Russia does have to do certain things to implement the deal as currently constructed, which is the Iranian stockpile that gets shipped out of the country goes to Russia to be dealt with. And which destroyed. will be demagogued yeah, by yeah. everybody. Look, we're shipping nuclear material to Russia. Why? Yeah. They have like 6,000 fucking nuclear They've weapons. They've got more nuclear weapons than we do. They don't need the Iranian low enriched uranium stockpile. Right? <laughs> um, but then what Russia was demanding was essentially this kind of larger sanctions carve out that didn't have to do with the sanctions relief for Iran, but had to do with kind of sanctions relief for Russia. And it was pretty clear that the US and Europe said that's totally off the table. Um, to me, it's a sign that like if the Russians really wanted to spoil this thing, they could, um, which would require the US and Europe then to kind of almost have to cut our own deal with Iran, which would make Iran have to choose between their Russian patron and the sanctions relief they want. It's it, it's a sign of like how much this can complicate other things. And, and like I, if I'm Iran, I look at like the Trump administration to Biden. I'm not banking on the U.S. as a credible partner. Yeah. Well, what you saw too is like there there were these um, missile attacks on Erbil. Right, the I forgot capital, to even bring right? that up. That were attributed to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. That could be about Iraqi politics and Iran wanting to influence that, but it could also be about. You know, hardliners in Iran are close to Russia. Just like, I mean, this war can, can or also, spread. They said it might be because the Israelis hit 
He's some right, targets yeah, you in never Syria, know. maybe, and it killed yeah. some IRGC members. But yeah, you're right. I mean, who knows? But someone made it interesting. Again, I'm not trying to be your doomsayer here, but like world wars tend to start in multiple, you know, like they don't all start in one place, right? And there are these flashpoints, right? Like Ukraine was the biggest one. Iran, Iraq, that's another one, right? Um, Taiwan is another one. Like there's a there's too many pots right now that are, you know, boiling or beginning to simmer, like... Uh, and, and and I think as this war escalates, food shortages, famines, conflicts, sanctions, economic fallout, supply chain disruptions, like we are at the beginning of something that we don't know how it's going to end. Yeah. I, I mean, when I saw the reports of all these world leaders going to Kiev, it made me think of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. What happens Austria. if a world leader gets killed? What happens if Zelensky? I don't want to be like, a doomsday yeah. either, but that's where my yeah. Yeah. fucked up brain No, went. but it's it's it, like this is just very volatile. And again, like, my God, I hope I'm totally wrong. And two weeks from now, like, there's a, a you know, ceasefire announced and it holds and it leads to some diplomacy that, but that's not the likely scenario, right? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, might get worse before it gets better. Uh, okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Ben is going to learn how to be an oligarch. Did you get a boat out of this? Um, I didn't, although I hear there's a $700 million yacht. For sale somewhere. Real cheap. Do you have a soccer team? Um, You know, I'd like Newcastle to come on the market as well as Chelsea. Chelsea too, yeah. Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com. Now I'm very pleased to be joined by Tom Burgess, who is the author of Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World, and a special investigations correspondent at the Financial Times. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, I've told you this, and I've even mentioned this on the show, but I'm just going to say it again. Uh, Everybody should read Kleptopia. Um, If if you're curious about (laughs) Russian oligarchs and and Putinism and, and how corruption has infected our own countries... And if you just want to read a thriller, uh, I mean, this book takes you to Italy and private jets and Zimbabwe and uh, espionage. Uh, it's just a great book. So uh, congratulations on the book, Tom. That's very kind. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, so let's just start with where you are today. You're, you're talking to us uh, from, from Parliament where you're giving evidence. What, what, what are you up to? And, and we'll use that to get into the, the, your recent uh, events. Yes, well, my my uh, my MP has very kindly let me use a corner of his uh, his office in uh, um, in in Westminster. Uh, I'm here today because we've been giving um, evidence to the committee of Parliament to talk about um, what they call slaps, these strategic lawsuits against public participation, yeah. which might perhaps sound like it's a sort of arcane bit of the law, but it's actually absolutely crucial to these huge questions we're grappling with now, I think, about how dirty money is conquering the world and about how to counter these corrupt dictators like Putin, but also many others elsewhere. But the, what we were talking about in Parliament today was uh, was lawfare, as they call it, right? So it's uh, the rich and powerful, whether that be 
Putin's oligarchs or um, cronies of Southern African dictators or whoever it may be using massively expensive legal proceedings in London, the, the global capital of lawfare, to try to, to um, muzzle the press and, and, and basically to sort of target reporters, book publishers, newspapers, broadcasters, whenever they try to scrutinise the origins of their clients' wealth, which has been made in these violent kleptocracies of the former Soviet Union and elsewhere. So that's what we're we're doing today. The reason I'm in today is because um, some of the oligarchs who are in my book, um, ones who who control big mining interests in Central Asia and Africa, and once had one of the richest companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. Um, they through a through a London company, they they sued me about the book, and this has been going on for many many months. Um, we've endured surveillance, we've endured all manners of threats and and danger of massive costs if it went against us. And then um, a couple of weeks ago, to my absolute delight, I was sitting in court, not too far from here in the high court, with my publisher and legal team, thinking about all the sources, tremendously brave sources who will never obviously receive any recognition because it would be terribly dangerous for them if anyone knew their identity. But it took these risks, whether it be in Central Africa or, 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 or the former Soviet Union, or indeed these days in Washington, um, yeah. to to entrust me with this information. I was sitting there thinking, Jesus, if I've screwed this up in some way or or, or if we get outmaneuvered in some way and 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 um, the book is censored or, or, or doubt is cast on these important stories about corruption and the sort of human cost of it, then then then, then that will be a, a terrible thing. They were actually suing, specifically claiming that um, I had said that a holding company they control murdered some people and I mean, you don't need First Amendment protections to to, to realise how absolutely absurd it is that, that 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 a legal case can be brought on those grounds. I, I did write about how witnesses in a big potential witnesses in a major criminal corruption case have died in suspicious circumstances, but we don't know what befell them. It's just one part of this big story about corruption all over the the world. Anyway, a judge magnificently in a few hours saw through this and threw the case out. Um, but the reason this is so so important is that there's cases like mine, and there was another one about Putin's people, another brilliant yeah. book. Yeah, she was, uh, C- Catherine was on this podcast, actually. So you're the second <laughs> author we've had in a month. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, me and Catherine are by the same, oligarchs. Yeah. the same publisher. We're both from Northern England. We meet up for a pie occasionally. In fact, once a few <laughs> months ago when we were really, you know, under the gun, we, we met up in my local in South London and we sent our publisher a picture saying this is the single greatest concentration of legal risk around any pub table in England. Yeah. Uh, it, it certainly was. But, um, the, the, the um, you know, that Catherine's case, she's a brilliant journalist, Catherine. And this is one of the costs of this kind of thing. You know, she's been tied up in that and not doing her brilliant reporting for a year. Yeah. Um, so, so these cases, we're really lucky to have, you know, really strong publishers behind us who stand up and, and will fight it all the way to court. Um, but the vast majority of this stuff that these law firms do, this is like firms like Carter, Ruck and Shillings, firms that most people never heard of, you know, day in, day out, they're essentially censoring the public record and deciding what people get to read about some of the most powerful and influential people in the world, the you know, generally oligarchs and people like that. Uh, and and there's a real energy now behind this for for reform, I think, because 
you know, people have grasped with the invasion of Ukraine, you know, a kleptocrat's war, the war of a regime that's run on corruption, which has been broadcasting that corruption into poisonously into democracies, the US, the UK and elsewhere, realising that this is the big struggle of our time. It's something we've talked about before, the struggle between kleptocracy, you know, the rule, the gathering power unto the few through corruption, and democracy, the rule of the many, whether that is in Ukraine, putting up a, you know, a hot fight to defend that, or whether it's in the US. And this is something I talk about in the book, where Trump is a creature of kleptocracy. I write about this in the in the book about in Kleptopia about how he's sustained for so long as a kind of phony businessman by money from kleptocracies, Russia, Kazakhstan, and elsewhere. That's what allowed him to pretend to be this successful tycoon. And then in, in office, he governs as a kleptocrat, right? He forms a club of kleptocrats, Putin, Mohammed bin Salman, yeah. um, Kim, and so on. Uh, uh, you know, the I used to be a correspondent in Nigeria. If a Nigerian president had come to office and through his family had retained the ownership of a, you know, an attractive seaside resort and a major hotel in the capital, and any business executive or despot from anywhere around the world could take a suite in those hotels and those resorts, put money pretty much directly in the president's pocket, that would have been regarded as a laughable example of outrageous <laughs> corruption. Yeah, yeah. If it was yeah. in Nigeria, there would be calls to cut off aid and so on. But, but when this happens in the West, as with like dodgy COVID contracting in the UK, you know, that gets called a chumocracy, yeah, not corruption. When there's all sorts of euphemisms used in the in the US about Trump, but I think this is why this stuff is so important because it cuts through all the the nationalist rhetoric, whether it be Trumps or Putins or Orbans or Maduros or the Iranian Iranian regimes or the Congolese yeah. dictators cut through all the propaganda down to the engine of this stuff, which is theft. Well, I want to go through now, like just kind of the basics here for people, because you've been so deep in this, it, it, starting with like where the wealth is, and then uh, we'll get to kind of what the service industry that protects the, the people and the wealth in places yeah, like yeah. London. But just to start with, like, you know, when people hear terms of oligarchs and they hear, you know, these billionaires, this and that, um, you know, you you do a great job in your book of, of demonstrating kind of where wealth that could originate in the former Soviet Union, right? And things like energy claims, right? Mining rights and things like that. How it kind of then spreads out around the world into different places and holding companies and investments. How could you describe to a layperson, you know, what an oligarch is and what kind of investments they make to to move their money around, to hide their money and to to grow their money? I mean, step one, Ben, let's let's imagine we are setting you off on a career as an oligarch. Yes, yes. And I am your um, shifty consigliere. Step one, you've got to get hold of a state asset. Yeah. You've got to get hold of something that belongs to the people of, let's say we're in Kazakhstan. Um, now, typically, these countries run on their economies in terms of how you can make serious money. The only options are oil, gas, and minerals. Generally speaking, outside... Eastern Europe, North America, and China. That's the only way to make money in the global economy. Yeah. So there was the greatest opportunity ever. This happens all the time in Congo and, and Bolivia and so on. But there was this one in our lifetimes, and well, in the, in the last century, really, this seismic opportunity for private individuals to capture state assets. And that was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah. The wealth of an empire was suddenly available 
capitalism was decreed to exist. So private ownership suddenly started to exist. And there were these privatizations cheered on by kind of business consultants and bankers from the West and so on. And so what we would do in that moment, Ben, is we would say, right, okay, well, we've got to scrabble together a bit of money. We're going to need, and we're going to need contacts with political influence. An oligarch is someone who turns political influence into private wealth. So yeah. at that moment, the people who had power were the KGB, the rem- parts of the remnants of the Communist Party, organized crime, and anyone who had any cash. Um, so there was this enormous free-for-all that created uh, a lot of it violent, um, that, that used a sort of quasi-legal process to transfer the wealth of the state, uh, mines, factories, physical things, but also things like mobile phone licenses. Yeah. Um, to, to whoever could make it worth the power, worth the powerful's while, right? So you would, there, there was this, um, it was just completely corrupt from top to bottom. It, yeah. Corrupt in the sense of the use of public office for private gain. Yeah. So let's say you got hold of a, um, a mine, a gold mine somewhere in um, deepest, darkest Russia. Now that's a great start, but what you need then is to sell that mine or to monetize it somehow. So you might be able to cobble a get, get a get a partner from London or a mining investor, someone to put a bit of money into that maybe. And and what you would really want to do is take the ownership of that asset and move it somewhere safe. The whole point about oligarchs is that they they profit from lawlessness. So they yeah. operate in a system that's not controlled by the rule of law. So here we are in Kazakhstan. We've we, we've got our, our couple of mates in in one of the main local mafias. We've greased the, the 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 president's brother and the oil minister. We've put some money in a, in a couple of secret offshore bank accounts. We've got hold of this asset, but now we know that we are vulnerable, right? Because we are perpetuating this lawless, violent system. And anyone who wants to could could beat us at our own game and take that mine off us. So what we do is we say, okay, well, we're going to list, we're going to call this mine a corporation. We're going to list it on the London Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, and KPMG, let's say, to, uh, to help us draw up some, um, some accounts, put together a sort of shiny prospectus, essentially mm-hmm. translate kleptocratic free-for-all into kind of MBA bullshit speak yeah and uh, and and take um uh, lawless violent power and turn it into western legitimate looking money and yeah. listing on stock exchanges is like the dream way of doing that and around the side of it goes the kind of information campaign it's so telling actually this came up today in these discussions in parliament it's so t- telling the resemblance between the tactics of the law, law firms and the PR agencies that work for these oligarchs and kleptocrats and the Putin's propaganda on Ukraine. It's essentially um, destabilized the truth. So what you're trying to do, um, if you are the the um, the information campaign that you, Ben, the, the, the up-and-coming young oligarch are putting together, is to erase your past, make it impossible mm. for anyone to write about the facts of how you, we had a couple of people bumped off and we greased the, the president's family. Yeah. That is all, that was, all has to be kept completely off limits to the media. Well, so, so I, I wanted to ask you about this because this is like one of the things that's so revelatory in your book because uh, you sent it out there, but you really 
tell it. So I'm the oligarch. You've got me in my mining interest. You've got me listed on the London Stock Exchange. We've got all these legitimate investors in the West who are kind of helping to kind of wash this money. Um, maybe then I'm starting to spread it around in other investments and stuff. But then there's this service industry, like you're describing. There's PR firms. There's law firms. The, the PR firms that can do this information campaign. There's law firms that can sue your opponents. There's even private intelligence agencies that can blackmail or dig up dirt or try to intimidate uh, people that are in the way. That appealed to me as someone who had <laughs> been spied on by Blackcube, one of those companies. Describe mm-hmm. this service industry. If you're my conciliar, what, what is available to me in a place like London or for that matter, Washington? Uh, and how do I make use of it? London is the place. London is the capital, really. I mean, there are yeah. various reasons that we can get into if you like, but London is the place you come because um, you can yeah you list your company on the stock exchange then you go over to Mayfair and you find these all these um private intelligence companies typically staffed by a combination of ex special forces people former intelligence guys um former politicians former senior law enforcement people um you can get them they can do things like open doors into the law enforcement agencies if you need to smooth smooth things over with them or crucially if you want to try to manipulate law enforcement agencies to target your own enemies so kind of hijack the rule of law to target your enemies sure that your enemy is probably as corrupt as you are but you are manipulating the system in that way yeah these agencies can track down people for you you can you can help um maintain favor with the dictator back home by targeting his political enemies trying to deliver up some of his enemies you can in one extraordinary case that i write about in the book um uh private intelligence firms will track down a dissident oligarch's wife and kid and then use the interpol system uh to have the italian police they were in rome to have the italian police essentially kidnap them on behalf of a dictator all within the framework of international law and hand them over to a couple of agents of the Kazakh dictators shove them on a jet and they fl- get flown back home. So that's the private intelligence industry you've got. The reputation management industry, as it's um, slightly euphemistically called, is these big law firms who essentially intimidate the press through through sheer force of costs. In the, in the UK, the libel laws are so um, generous to the claimant that, uh, and the law firms charge such massive fees and their oligarch clients have such limitless access to wealth that increasingly cash-starved newspapers d- dare not take them on in court. In my case, this is a rare one where, where we've, the publishers really went the whole way. But usually, often, unfortunately, the media just cave in the face of this. And essentially what this means is that p- these people who've amassed massive influence are off limits. And then another trick of this is political donations. This is a really yeah. scary bit. I've been writing about a story here about, about big political donations um, by, by a man who made, made a fortune in Russia. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole group of major donors, mainly to the Conservative Party in the UK, but actually really all the parties have this problem. Um, people who've made fortunes in Russia and other big kleptocracies, just rolling up to the UK, they buy this, they, they, they burn it their reputation, maybe a bit of money to an art gallery or university, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then they start pouring money into the political parties. And, what, what you're essentially creating is a kind of a superior class who have access to things that the rest of the citizenry don't have. They have access to law firms who can 
shield them from scrutiny. They've got access to ministers, up to the prime minister here that they can just buy. And then they do they do the kind of thing that um, Patrick Radden Kiefer about so brilliantly in Empire of Pain about the Sackler family, yeah, using donations to um, art galleries, universities, to the cultural sphere to create this alternative reality in which they're philanthropists and benefactors yeah. and just erase the past. Yeah, Roman Abramovich giving a hundred million dollars to Yad Vashem and and Israel's you know uh, you know prominent example of that. I so I, I now we're in this age of sanctions and. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on two things. One is how, from what you've seen, how effective these sanctions might be um, in actually getting at some of the oligarch resources and whether or not the kind of public reckoning that is finally happening um, is going to implicate, like you said, everything from the law firms to the reputation management industry. Like, do you, what what is necessary in terms of sanctions enforcement and kind of a cultural change in places like London to dislodge the influence of the oligarchs um, and, and to deal a blow, we should say, to the kind of kleptocratic system that Putin himself sits on, on top of. This does connect, obviously, to Ukraine. So um, I was a correspondent in Africa for quite a while for the Financial Times. And you see it from that side. So, for instance, in Zimbabwe under Mugabe, you'd see more names go on and off sanctions lists. This is targeted. I'm talking about targeted sanctions rather than you know, broad economic ones. This is like individuals trying to trying to target individuals to put pressure on a particular dictator. The, the thing is, really, sanctions in a case like Zimbabwe or Congo, and, and I fear now in Russia as well, what you're doing is just you're you're putting your finger of the scale on the scales of the internal power struggles of that regime. So life is getting harder for the a couple of hundred named individuals who were targeted in various ways by US, EU, UK sanctions. Um, that that might lead them to try to put some pressure on Putin, but it seems unlikely given how well he's brought the oligarchs to heel in the last 20 years. But But essentially, it's meaningless without two things. One is real enforcement. Like the UK has been absolutely feeble at enforcing sanctions. And this is, London is a clearinghouse for a lot of this dirty money. Um, and obviously, if you can shift an asset out of the US into London, it's, it, then sanctions are essentially meaningless. The, the US, I think, has got a bit of a better record on, on sanctions evasion, although it seems to go for targeting institutions with big fines rather than individuals. So you wonder how much of a deterrent that really is. But the massively much bigger problem, I think, is it's it, it's it's sort of so obvious that we that we that we miss it, which is that over the last what is it few decades, this concept of financial secrecy has emerged, which no one ever voted for or legislated for. A lot of it comes from the former British Empire, and every major corruption scandal, whether it's British arms deals in Africa, um, whether it's uh, KBR Halliburton in Nigeria, um, the, the, the list is endless. All the big ones, they all involve um, front companies. It's just so obvious. You, you have to give yourself a little bit of deniability if you are a big Western company in cahoots with uh, corrupt powers. So you, you use a user. A, you know, a front company, a company, let's say, in someone like the British Virgin Islands that you or your agents can set up and 
your fingerprints are. I know we're on it. So, you know, if the Pod Save America incorporated in the British Virgin Islands, <laughs> nobody knows who owns that. There, yeah. there, there is a lawyer somewhere who has a piece of paper which says that someone in Liechtenstein has another piece of paper in the Maldives with another piece of paper in Gibraltar. And behind that, in someone's drawer, is maybe a power of attorney that says Ben Rhodes ultimately controls this. But this is essentially impossible information to get hold of. But Pod Save America Incorporated is allowed to go around the world and operate like, as though it's a human being. We, this, is, this is so commonplace now that we maybe don't notice the sheer insanity of that. If you or I try to open a bank account tomorrow without giving our name, yeah. you can imagine how far we'd get with that. But if you're rich or powerful enough, you can buy the finest properties in the West in, in anonymity. And that yeah. means that you can, okay, you, you can put a thousand names on a sanctions list. But Putin will find new proxies. The Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan will find new proxies. Kabila in Congo will find new proxies. We, we, we're essentially sort of quite ostentatiously shutting the front door and saying, you're not going to march into London and buy our football clubs anymore. And that will show you. We're, doing, we're shutting the front door to certain members of one kleptocracy, but leaving out a big sign that says, actually, if you go around the back, you can still come in. Just, just yeah. put your mask on. Yeah. So a lot more... Uh... A lot more work, obviously, to be done. Um, are, are, I, I mean, Roman Abramovich has become kind of the poster boy of this. Uh, are you a Chelsea fan? Uh, <laughs> I'm a Man United fan, actually. Okay, okay. The, 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 the money behind which is is is, is less uh, is less dirty, you must say. But 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 actually, there's an important point here. You know, the weekend Chelsea played Newcastle United, and, yeah. and there's a huge uproar about the ownership of, of Chelsea. And this goes to the point of what are we saying? Are we calling time on guzzling on kleptocratic money, on, on our complicity with these monstrous dictatorships? Yeah. Or are we yeah. just saying, actually, we've got a problem with Putin? Newcastle United, controlled by Saudi MBS. money, a regime, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. a regime that literally dismembers its opponents. Uh, but yeah. we, we, we're, we're down with that. So, I mean, the main point here is that it, it, sanctions are, are not enough. You have to change the laws and enforcement around these this kind of invisible economy. Uh, and you need to be much more consistent and uniform in combating kleptocracy, not just when there's a geopolitical event like this war, but, yeah. you know, I mean, these, these, yeah, too. totally. These, yeah. these front companies are the getaway vehicle, right? And you basically, if you were really, really serious about this, and if you were waking, I think the US, because of the experience with Trump, woke up, because of what people like you grasped really early, woke up to the extent to his kleptocracy is a national security threat. Yeah. And the UK is only sort of twigging that now. And if you're really serious about that, then you basically have to make anonymous company ownership impossible. Yeah. As simple as that. Yeah, no, that, that's a good, good, good note to end on. Well, look, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you to your MP for making his office available and uh, wish you the best of luck going forward. Thanks so much for having me, man. Cheers. Thanks again to Tom Burgess for joining the show. Thanks again to Tom Brady for giving us the only light moment of this podcast. Oh, wait, I forgot the one dumb thing. We'll do it at the close. Uh, Elon Musk tweeted that he wanted to fight Vladimir Putin in one-on-one combat. If I was viewed as one of the smartest people in the world, and I was, I think, at the moment, the richest person in the world, why do you have to be such a dumb troll all the time? Yeah, I mean... You have the childish view of a war. People are dying. I don't think you have to be, like, that woke to identify some toxic masculinity in the, in the uh, just the scenario of, like, toxic Elon Musk. Everything. But actually, it might, like, maybe they could ba- basically, you know, take each other out and 
you know, um, and let the rest of us kind of figure out what to do. I don't know. You're suggesting some sort of win-win scenario. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying maybe battle. maybe you can send them to space. Maybe they're gonna. How about that? Like they yeah. just they get on a rocket, they go to space, and they never, you know, they colonize Mars and leave us alone down here. That that might be good. Yeah, just like uh, ten days ago, t- two weeks ago, he's tweeting his support for Ukraine. He's helping out Zelensky with satellites. Now he's trolling people who say they care about Ukraine and, and uh, threatening to fight Putin in combat. Putin is actually like a well-trained martial artist. I know he's a little guy, but like you could probably kick your ass, Elon. Uh, I, yeah, nor does I think he gives a shit about, you know. I mean, Elon Musk thinks anything that's happening in the world, he must be the center of the attention around it. You know, And, and on this one, I just don't think uh, he is. Yeah, I like know. I realize that Putin's pretty um, preoccupied right now and busy. Yeah. I do imagine that Tesla, SpaceX, a lot of these companies uh, are pretty... Uh, likely intelligence collection targets for the GRU or the FSB. They want spaceship designs. Yeah. They want, you know, compromising info on Elon Musk. Like maybe don't troll this sociopath. Well, yeah, I I I, I do what is interesting about it, I guess, is it it kind of speaks to this thing that's happening where you know, we we've talked about how like all these like companies in all these different contexts of wussed out on standing up to autocrats like the, the ukraine thing is kind of weirdly broken that seal in a good way like i'm glad yeah, to see sure. people doing it i just wish it manifested itself in ways other than elon musk uh, demanding to fight Vladimir Putin. yeah i think charlie wartzel was a really great uh columnist uh was like just the, the the need for some people to view even wars through lame internet fandom is yeah. depressing and, and, and their own way. experience you know, yeah their own experience of it you know, yeah like just, uh, you're not you're not the story here, you know? log off elon yeah uh that's it for this week talk to you guys next week yeah Positive the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.